I'm your host, Claudia Shamba, welcoming you to the September 15, 2015 edition of Ask a Leader. Last week, UCI, the UCI community, lost two intrepid and invigorated souls, Jim Dunning and Virginia Laddie. I wouldn't be doing this community radio medium properly if I wouldn't take stock of these two people. Jim was previously the Dean of Admissions at UCI. I think he might have been almost the founding one. And he was a, the founding member of the Pacific Corral. He was a contributor, major one, to Irvine's Sister Cities programs. And he was an accomplished sailor. He takes with him a lot of very uh, from the ground breaking stories that uh, with the original Chancellor Aldrich and many of the institutional builders here uh, with him. I miss him. He was a, one of my most treasured neighbors. Virginia Laddie, was, uh, who also died last week, was a member of the Women's Air Force Corps. She, was, uh, she dabbled and did many uh, business ventures. She was a stockbroker. That's probably where she made her money so that she could eventually be a patron of political and cultural institutions in the UCI community and all over Orange County. She uh, died last week. She was a treasured friend and, uh, as I said, a contributor to this uh, entire community. She turned out to a lot of activist events deep into her 80s. I honor both of them. Now, back to as for today's program, for the whole hour, we get acquainted with UCI Professor Kathleen Traceder, an ecology and evolutionary scientist on the researcher escalator. She'll take us along her formative path towards studying fungi, ecosystems, and global change. We'll be right back after a short station break. Welcome back to the show. Today, we devote the whole hour to a, I, she's more than a rising star, she is a rock star in ecology and evolutionary science as we take stock of the opportunities that she has had and what she's doing with them to demonstrate one path for women in science. My guest today is UCI professor Kathleen Traceder, an ecology and evolutionary scientist and a Chancellor's Fellow at UCI. We'll cover some formative years of hers during this interview, but before we do her formal education, I'm going to let her tell us, where did you get your bachelor's in science? University of Utah. University of Utah and your master's, or did you go straight into a PhD program? I just went straight to my PhD and I got it at Stanford University. Stanford. And then before joining UCI in roughly, I think it was 2004, she taught at the University of Pennsylvania and the University of California at Riverside. Her team's work examines the role of fungi in mediating ecosystems responses to global change. It's a dire charge that they're taking up, an essential charge. She could boast a cast of a thousand at her same name, Traceder Lab, but you said we'll talk about them too. She joins me in studio today. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Dr. Kathleen Traceder. 
Hello, I'm so glad to be here. Well, I'd like to start with your formative experiences and opportunities, Kathleen, at the earliest stages that you can mm -hmm. recall. Dig, dig as deep as you can. What engaged your attention? Well, it's, I really had to think a lot to remember this. I'm 43, so this is going quite a ways back. Um, but when I was around three or so, I really, really enjoyed going out in my backyard and looking at bugs and playing with them and figuring out what they were doing. And I think in this respect, I'm not alone. And if you talk to most ecologists who've gone into this line of work, and you ask them, it's almost a cliche. They played with bugs when they were kids in their backyard, and that inspired them. And you recall, it's 43, so this puts <laughs> you in a kind of a demographic. I'm not sure if it's, this was the still let them loose until dinner time, <laughs> yeah. and the, the street lights yeah. went on. But so would you consider your childhood t activities to be unfettered by uh, some structure that we're getting to see uh, becoming yeah. an acculturated norm now? What what would your day be like that, uh, you know, a lot, you could dig deep, as it were, yeah, in we the backyard? Yeah, we were pretty wild. So we spent the whole day outside. I have three brothers and a bunch of kids in the neighborhood, and we just roam in packs around the neighborhood, and we go look in all these abandoned fields, and I think that was really important. And then on the weekends, we go on hikes in the mountains. I grew up in Utah, and so we spent a lot of times outdoors. So you were in the terrain that would lead you back to the research that you took up later in the yeah the um, all where the, um, I want to say the topography sort uh, all kinds of micro um, yeah. climates and domains and that kind of a thing exactly. So you were you're talking about the, that kind of activity. Were there other activities that interested you? I mean, and I want right. to know like what what kinds of tools around did you have at your disposal mm. what were you working with well I liked everything really I mean um, I was thinking I wasn't sure I would go into science until I was maybe a senior in high school so up until that point I was interested in everything and I really liked art especially photography so I got into photography when I was in elementary school and so I go around and photograph things and that also has really helped me in my work now because when you're a photographer or an artist you're an observer and you're really looking at it what's happening and documenting it. And that's very much like science as well. Just want to know, was it black and white and color? Just because um, that black and white might be another mm. dimension. I like black and white more, that's okay. for sure. So that's that's teasing more that discerning eye, that <laughs> uh, calculating like the, the whole zones of black right. and white photography. So yeah, I learned that. Yeah. Oh, 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 this is all making some certain sense and a logic. Mm. And so, uh, so that's the camera, that's the... Uh, the uh, tools of the backyard, the tools mm -hmm. up in the mountain. Were you camping up there and that kind of thing? You had to yeah. learn some. Okay, because what we're going to get at is, too, is what kind of skill sets were you right. picking up along the way? I mean, how mm -hmm. you could be up there on, on your own in the mountains at a certain age? Yeah, we would go for spring breaks in high school. We'd go down to southern Utah, and we'd camp out there, just groups of high school girls, and we definitely have to be self-reliant. We go around and hike, and you have to be a problem solver, and you have to be adventurous. You have to be prepared. Prepared. Equipped. Yeah. Know your equipment and those kinds of things. Exactly. Okay. And so let's plot the path along the uh, your school and beginning with the earliest uh, school classroom activities and teachers yeah. What was it that you picked up on uh, as we're probing again back into those formative years? You know, what was happening in school and what was what was uh, the trend or what was 
the um, your forte and uh, were you allowed to, to remain in that strong interest or were you you were pursuing all interests how did that come together well I think back on my elementary years and we were giving a lot of freedom I think much of the day to work on things on our own and to talk with each other and uh, and I really appreciate that I would um, read my own books and read about science and other things and I needed that freedom I, I think it's a little bit more regimented now I get that impression and I'm not sure I would have done as well in that sort of situation was it a homogeneous kind of a uh culturally speaking, a classroom. And so mm. uh, I'm, I'm thinking sometimes that there, there are opportunities for students to, to pursue different paths if we've got a homogeneous consideration there. We're not accommodating yeah. all kinds of backgrounds. Yeah, I think that, you know, I, I grew up in suburban Utah, and there's one particular type of demographic there um, that's dominant. And so it was homo homogeneous in that respect. That's for sure. I was not part of that. So I always felt different and independent. And I always wanted to find my own path. And so, you know, I think when we'd have this free time in the classroom, I go and find my own books to read and read those. It's not necessarily what everybody else was reading. So you were reading about photography yeah. as well. And that, that's a science. That's an art and a science. And yeah. uh, okay. And so were there particular educators that mm. spotted what you were doing there with that stack of, <laughs> of self-selected literature and they were nurturing that? Yeah. Or were you self-starting all the way through no. your primary, secondary education? You know, in elementary school, my teachers gave me nothing but support. Nothing but support. I mean, I was not following a lot of the curriculum that they were <laughs> um, teaching, but th I think they recognized they that got that's out what of your I needed. Way. Yeah, exactly. And they never gave me any trouble for reading my own books and doing my own thing, as long as I got my work done. And so I really appreciate that. I, I think that that might have been rare. Yes. So I, I also want to talk about a little bit of your immediate family. What were your parents, are your parents' vocations? Well, my father was a mechanical contractor with a construction company, and my mother, uh, you know, was a stay-at-home mom, and uh, neither of them had graduated from college, so I was first-generation college. They didn't really have a lot of expertise in science or know about the culture of science or academia, um, so they couldn't really help me with that, but they definitely didn't stop me from going into it. They made it really clear uh, as I was growing up, that it was up to me to decide what I wanted to do, and they would support me no matter what. Was your mechanical engineer father, though, a handy guy, and uh, there were things that you could do alongside him? You oh. watched him do? Yeah, definitely. I mean, he w he's great at building things, and he'd do that all the time. Um, he gave me my own tool set when I was five. I had my own tiny little saw and tiny little hammer, and whenever he had spare wood from his projects, he'd give it to me, and I'd hammer it. And then I also have three brothers, so I was around them all the time. They had the same sets of tools, and we'd all be working side by side. And I have two older brothers, and they were really into engineering and science. And so I spent a lot of my time with them. They were older than me. So they'd be at the workbench, and they'd be making electrical projects, and I'd be watching them. And they'd be in high school and taking physics classes, and I'd read their textbooks, and they'd tell me what they'd learned that day. And so I was surrounded by all of this information. So uh, apart from your junior tool test, were you also uh, able to work with some of the legit tools? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The soldering iron. They showed me how to use a soldering iron when I was maybe six, 
which I have a seven-year-old now. I can't imagine doing that. But, um, well, but, that's, but that's, see, that's the thing, though. That's where I think we're acculturating this kind of safety I margin. <laughs> and I, I heard a, a radio TED Talk, and there is a camp, a summer camp around that. I don't mean to digress this much further, but to make the point is that th- this camp makes, uh, its, its charter is to get the most dangerous tools <laughs> out there. And yeah. everybody, there's a hesitation, but they do take up those tools and they understand yeah. the hazard of them. And then they approach them appropriately with that so yeah uh, what you don't want to deprive your seven-year-old of what I you know. had yeah I didn't get that starting on I heard that show too they give okay. them like power saws everything and the kids respect it because they know how dangerous it is right and they don't have any injuries and they're expected to work with them and they're they're not going to leave and, and they they make they make tremendous progress yeah it's uh, pretty compelling Right. Okay. So you know exactly what I'm talking. About. So, all right. Your seven-year-old, his life has just been, <laughs> has just been turned around. So, well, that's your family situation. So there was such an immersion, and I think birth order can really yeah. create an opportunity. You have the data you mine from three preceding siblings. Yeah. And you can watch what they're doing, and they were, and have been, convivial enough to. Uh, hand down the the lore the the intrigue and the know-how to you so that's right. you had distinct advantages over their number one two yeah and maybe almost a th- and certainly the third so well if any of you, if you have just joined us my guest is UCI ecology and evolutionary scientist chancellor fellow and leader of the Traceder lab professor Kathleen Traceder on ask a leader on KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming in labs around the world on the web at KUCI.org. So that was the formative year. So in high school, you are, you, you, is this when you started to see yourself as a, a woman of a, a science vocation? Yes, exactly. So I was interested in lots of different things, even in high school. But that is when I really started thinking about science very carefully. And there was a group of women that I was friends with who were also very interested in science. And we went through all the classes together and we really took it seriously. Let's talk about that group. Yeah. This was in high school. Yes. And so they all had, did they have similar backgrounds or were you a kind of, uh, hmm. kind of an initiate, initiator here and uh, from your experience or how, what kind of a collegial at that early time, yeah. uh, dynamic, uh, aspect was there to this group and how many of there were you uh, roughly there were 10 of us 10 yeah and um you were tens yeah (laughs) they had similar backgrounds and there was one uh Catherine and she was really the leader she's brilliant just brilliant and her father was an engineer and she also got lots of training as a child so um so we really interacted a lot okay and you were all from the same school. That's yes. A, that's how you knew each other. And are you still in touch? Yeah, we are still. Our, our lives have really diverged quite a bit uh, because, you know, we had different religious backgrounds and different expectations for us. Well, everybody's going to wonder. So different religious backgrounds back in the, yeah. the, in this, the 80s in uh, Utah. That's right. pretty remarkable. But, but yes. you had that. Okay. Yeah. All right. So, well, let's talk about then the... Uh, Let's uh, any other influences, and and I guess I want you to think about your the pedagogical influences mm-hmm. then, and there are more demands now. We have because I'm thinking with heterogeneous classroom settings, mm-hmm. it's just more complicated the landscape. But we have now the Common Core, whose charter is to try to introduce 
more critical thinking. Mm-hmm. So I'm not sure if uh, now with your seven year old is in, he's now involved in the Common Core at the very earliest part. So mm-hmm. I don't know if you're seeing features of this kind of pedagogy mm-hmm. that might foster what would yes. have supported you, what supported you in an informal way in your formative years. Yeah. Um, so I actually have two seven year olds, a boy and a girl, so twins. And so they both had this experience in school and their first grade, you could really see they were working very hard to develop the higher level thinking, like critical thinking. They on their own analysis, or in the school? The school was. Okay. okay. So they, ha- they even have these brain map type diagrams that just map out how you can fit ideas together and how they can overlap or things like that. And I think it's, it's very clever. And so I think it's, it's definitely got to be an improvement over just kind of memorization and, and regurgitation. And are your peers going to, are they supporting this new initiative? Because I know some parents reel with any kind of a mm-hmm. change that rolls out. And so it's, a, there's been a, a very complicated appraisal in the mainstream discussion of that. But is, you see that this is yeah. going to take hold and that these features are uh, recognized as beneficial? Well, I, I definitely think they are. I haven't talked too much about this with my peers. Well, you're too busy in the lab. <laughs> But um, but but definitely, I I think we would support all around better critical thinking. Okay. Well, we can talk now. We can transition into your the uh, oh one more thing that uh, in the formative years that you talked about this group of ten young ladies. Are there any other activities, organized activities along the way that were also serving you in? putting together the scientific oh, mind of yours. Yeah, you know what? There was a great experience yes. I had in middle school, and it was called Summer Science. And so it was a week-long camp that you could sign up for if you wanted during the summer, and they would take us to the canyons right around Salt Lake City and the deserts, and it was just it was basically one big, long ecology field trip that we took in middle school. And so they'd tell us about the trees, they'd tell us how canyons were formed by glaciers, and I loved it. I do that every summer. Uh, and I think that, looking back, that was really important to me. Well, you've probably put together in, from the, the reading and yeah. your camping on your own with, and with, fam- with brothers and things like that. that so here it was, the tactile, uh, experiential right. kind of uh, laboratory for you. You were all ready. It was prime time. Yeah, you have to get out there. You have to get outside to see what's going on, to get curious about it. And for the, the critical, essential lessons to sink in, how long was that some, that ecology field trip? You know, they were about three days. So that's all it. day. Yeah, all day for three days. But that seemed like forever in middle school. <laughs> so a Three, a three a yeah. th- continual, uh, not, yeah. uh, not different days. Yeah, so yeah, in there. a string. Yeah. And I wonder if that's still around. <gasps> I hope so. Okay. Well, yeah. Right back, right back <laughs> to the school board. Yeah. With your, what you bring to science now. <laughs> formidable. So, all right. Well, let's, let's now turn to your chosen career. We have a good deal of time to talk about that. Yeah. The scientific inquiry, the inroads, and the drive to contribute to and have an impact on the devastating impacts of climate change through examining the ecological consequences of fungal biodiversity. That's that's what your talks are about. That's what yeah. your, your lab is doing. So let's first look at the institutional aspect of this. Mm-hmm. You prepared to be the researcher. 
Yeah. I guess you you modeled, you saw lots of teachers, so you were preparing along the way what kind of a teacher, and you're also a manager. You're keeping yes. that lab going. Yeah. And you, uh, in previous ventures, and you can tell me who's in and who's uh, mm-hmm. who's been added, National Science Foundation Ecosystems, National Foundation Geoscience, Department of Energy, Kearney Foundation, the National Oceanic Atmospheric Administration, Mellon Foundation, mm-hmm. UCI Environmental Institute. So yeah. you are putting funding sources together yeah. that have particular criteria. They don't care what you want to do. They have their mm-hmm. own ideas what they want done. Yeah. So talk about the managerial role that you had to add to this mm-hmm. hyphenated profile <laughs> of yours. Yeah, I basically run a small business and that business is my lab. And my job is to generate the funds to run the science. So that is you know, going out and looking for all these opportunities. They don't necessarily approach me and figuring out like how our interests can merge. So they want to fund a certain type of work, and I want to do a certain type of work that's a little bit different. Where can I find the connection? How can I pitch it to them so that they'll buy into it? Um, And if I do that successfully, I get the money, and (laughs) I get to run my lab for another year. And if I don't, I have to keep looking. Well, Kathleen, does it get easier, or does Mm. it, some parts you can read better, but the funding is is dialing down? Oh, yeah. So I think uh, in terms of the tasks, it's, it's easier for me now. You know, a lot of those skills I developed, I have a good idea what works and what doesn't. But overall, it's getting much harder because the funding rate is just going downhill really fast. Um, I think that the amount of funding that NSF is getting is, has held constant, more or less. But the there's National Science so, Foundation. Yeah, National, National mm-hmm. Science Foundation. Um, but there are so many more people in this area now than there used to be. So we're all competing over the same pie. The funding rates now for grants are something like 3%. So if you want to get a grant, you've got to submit and submit and submit. Now I'm bringing up a very delicate topic here uh, that we have had sequestered um, the um, funds that has, um, there's been this is creating data gaps in right. some fields. Uh, so when we have a, a, a government stoppage, does that, what effect does that have on keeping your lab going? It does have an effect. Uh, there was Tell a, us all about that. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a time back around 2008 when the California budget was just awful. And I had some money from California to do some soil work. And they said, you know, we're not sure. We might have to take that back. Uh, you know, we'll see. In a few months, we'll let you know. And in the meanwhile, I'm trying to pay my people and buy supplies. And I didn't know if I could count on that continuing. Luckily, they didn't have to do that. They, they kept the funding going. But at that time, I thought, well, I better get out into the private sector. So I started working with some companies who needed some products developed. And that helped a lot. That helped us get through the gap. Okay. And is that like the Kearney Foundation? The, the, the Kearney Foundation, yeah, that was California funded. Okay. Yeah. I worked with an agricultural company at that time, too, and we developed a patent together. And so that really helped a lot. So uh, is the data gap something that you're able to work through and around, Mm -hmm. or I should say around and through? Or um, I'd I'd like for you to speak intellectually honestly about Mm -hmm. how the this kind of football game of science funding is something that has some irreversible consequences. I think, yeah, I think definitely there's going to be a lot less discovery. I think that um, a lot of times if we're stretched in our budget, 
uh, we have to get papers out with as little bit of data as we can to keep our productivity up. And so we don't have as much deep thinking or robust data sets um, when, the, when the funding is tight. Yeah, I think that's true. We don't have, for our lab, we, we're not doing, say, a whole time series where we're looking over maybe 20 years, and if we have um, no funds for a couple of years, then that's really devastating. But there are groups that are doing that, that are measuring things every 20 years, and if they run out of funds, then that's kind of it for that series. And, um, you know, N NASA's having some problems. Right. Um, Sherwood you know, Rowland used to talk about that. Yeah. So we have satellites that are measuring lots of different things on Earth. You know, whenever we talk about, you know, we know the global temperatures are increasing. We know the ozone hole is there. All those things are documented by satellites that are up every year and often multiple satellites so in case one fails. But those satellites are getting old and they're very expensive. And a lot of times they're not necessarily being replaced. So that is a very, very strong consequence of budget shortfalls. So you as the manager are funding a prodigious crew of, yeah. of, of undergraduates, graduates, uh, doctoral candidates, and postdocs, and yeah. you're sending them along the way to some amazing places that you post on the Traceder Lab website. It's wonderful yeah. to see <laughs> that. So, uh, let's, let's, so that's where your managerial mm -hmm. uh, component comes in handy. You're, you're mentoring them. I, yeah. I guess you have models of mentors, how they mm -hmm. effectively worked with you, and that is a model to for you to tr translate that to working exactly. with them. And I noticed how graciously on your Vimeo with the, the Harvard talk, how uh, that every single postdoc or ev every contributing student got their they're due in your, yeah. you're doing the lecture. They're not there, but you're reminding everybody with a visual and mm -hmm. a, a verbal reference to, that they're there. So let's talk then uh, about then uh, these, this team, I, I think there is a proclivity here. They're, they're mostly women. Yeah. I think that's probably both accidental and intentional. Yeah, it's, so it's varied at times over the lifetime of my lab. There are times when I've had more men and times I've had more women. Right now, just by happenstance, there's one man and four women. Um, and, you know, it is, it is mostly just chance. On the other hand, I am very careful about promoting women because I know that there's a lot of unconscious bias against it um, that we just can't help. And so when I think about it, I really try, if there are two candidates who are really good, I'll try to go for the candidate that improves diversity in science. So, you know, sometimes that's women, sometimes that's people from underrepresented groups. I really try to promote that where I can. Is the diversity about that mind on the substantive area or mm -hmm. and or is it a, a mind that can take back to an underrepresented demographic? It's all of it. There's there's so many advantages to promoting diversity. I could go on for hours. Well, let's talk about that. Yeah, yeah. I think because I don't think we're getting very many column inches on that. It's it's all about the pomp and the circumstances, good intentions. But let's unpackage that all the way. Right. So first of all, um, I want to counteract any sort of, you know, extra difficulty that people from diverse backgrounds have getting into science. And they do. They do have difficulty. It's well documented. Um, so I want to offset that, first of all, by bringing them into the lab and giving them a chance. And I've never regretted that. Uh, people with different backgrounds bring really important contributions into the lab. They have different perspectives. 
they have different backgrounds. You know, sometimes they'll be very mature because they've had to overcome difficulties in the past. And that really makes a difference. That helps them overcome difficulties in grad school. They're overachievers. They're and overachievers. They're so applied and they bring such inquiry into your lab. Yeah, exactly. And that really improves the lab. Right now, I mean, all the whole time I had my lab, I wanted to have people with very different skill sets, backgrounds, perspectives. We all work together. They can contribute so much more than I can just by myself. Can you give us maybe a maybe an anecdote that well, might walk us through that that yeah. magical moment? Yeah, so I'll just tell you right now. So I have a student, Adriana Romero, and she's from Mexico. She got her master's degree in Mexico and her bachelor's degree in Mexico. And I was very happy to bring her into the lab. And we actually have a program at UC to specifically to bring students from Mexico into the lab. And you wow. know, what's it called again? It's called UC Mexis. Okay, yeah. thank you. So, um, so, so basically, you know, she comes into the lab. She has an amazing skill set. She studied fungi in the oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico. So they're actually fungi deep in the ocean that are breaking down that spilled oil. That's something that I have absolutely no experience in, fungi in the ocean. I'm getting so, goosebumps yeah, with exactly. this matchup. Yeah, and so she was able to do that because she was in Mexico and they're very interested in that. And that she, she got that experience. I'd have a hard time finding someone with that experience in the US. And then she, she comes in, she has an amazing attitude, amazing work ethic. And, um, and moreover, now whenever, you know, there's samples that I need to get down in Mexico. I have no idea where to go to get them, but I can ask her and she puts me in touch with a scientist in Mexico to collaborate with. And that just really broadens my whole research program. And so I, it's, it's an absolutely positive thing for me. And somebody did the vetting through the, the UC Mexis that may be mm -hmm. not uh, located uh, in Southern California. It's maybe up in uh, the Oakland, uh, the UC administrative office or something, but they yeah. somehow she, she found her way to you. Somehow you matched up. Yeah, She contacted me cause she'd heard about me and, but she didn't know about this funding opportunity. Oh. And so okay. I knew about, it. I'd heard about it. So I said, yeah, look it up and we'll see. And you know, she got the funding uh, through this program and it, and it really does make all the difference. She's fully funded. Okay. So this is an appropriation from the, the state to yeah. keep this going. And yeah. folks, it sounds like a pretty darn good return on the money. It <laughs> You're really is. leveraging uh, scientific minds and institutions outside of the country. So uh, so this is Mexico that uh, right. these students are coming from. Yeah. All right. So that's a, that's a lovely way to do to demonstrate what's going on in the lab that you're leveraging. Are there any other kinds of uh, maybe uh, Sort yeah. of a case studies and before we uh, go yeah. on to a little bit more about the collaborations. Well, I do have one, but it's more of an intellectual diversity. Okay, um, good. And so, you know, I do, I do work that's really interdisciplinary. You know, it's couched mostly in biology, but it also requires a lot of chemistry and math and all sorts of things. So I can't, as one person, cover all that, be an expert in that. So I try to bring in people who can cover those areas. And I was really lucky. I got this student uh, approach me and she had a bad bachelor's in analytical chemistry, which is very, a very challenging area of chemistry. I would have no hope of picking that up. She came into my lab. She really took a risk to come into ecology. And she brought in all these new techniques and new perspectives. And the research that she generated was so original in our field. She's gotten award after award after award. She just got the Soil Ecology Society 
early career award and she's on a really high trajectory and she's doing all that she's really contributed to the field of ecology because of her breadth of background and I'm so glad that I was able to bring her in that's a marvel I and yeah. in your talks you've talked about such complex kinds mm. of uh, trials that are going on well yeah. and talk about your collaboration three percent of all of these projects are getting funded but you're still collaborating you're still working with people mm -hmm. all over can you talk a little bit about the reach of your science with right. others. Almost every single project that we have in the lab, we're collaborating with other faculty, either at UCI or at other universities, and sometimes they'll be in whole other fields. So I have uh, right now a, a, pro a project with a um, geomorphologist, and so they're studying um, erosion in California, and we're looking at how the fungi might contribute to that. Um, so almost everything we do is really interdisciplinary and re requires collaboration. And they're finding you. It's a two-way street. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Which is challenging. You, we've got to really get out there and make sure that people know about us outside our field. And I guess something that occurs to me now, in, in, uh, thinking deeper into this, is that what's a, let's talk about a woman's sensibilities, if there's anything special. And I think we do know there's something special. <laughs> I, I learned uh, this recently in the mainstream press is that when a transgendered transition is occurring mm -hmm. when the male when the female sheds her femininity and transforms into a male that new person cannot multitask the way that person did yeah. as a woman so that's why i'm saying there are different uh, sensibilities yeah. here so in the as a woman in science how does your thinking factor in especially and in, in terms mm -hmm. of trusting collaborations yeah. and and then we can get even deeper into scientific inquiry you know I think it is really important for collaborations there was just a study that came out yesterday that showed that um, when we have these large collaborative groups in ecology specifically if there's a woman involved in the group then the science has higher impact so you look at how much the papers that come out of the group are cited they're cited about 30 percent more if there's a woman in the group than if there's just men. And I was really intrigued by this. I read the paper and I wanted to find out why that was. And the authors said they weren't quite sure. It's very complex. But they said that one thing we do know is that when women are in groups, there's more turn-taking in the conversation. So everybody gets a chance to submit their ideas and there's better listening. And I can see that that might really help with collaborations like that, especially if we're talking among people with really different perspectives. Everybody needs to have a chance to contribute theirs. Intellectual multitasking. Yeah, something like that. Listening while uh, configuring in your mind, that kind of thing. So that's a, a huge proportion represented in publications yeah yeah so are there any other attributions to that or let you think about that while we're considering it's, that well I think that um, in general we have different interests uh, men and women or people of different demographic backgrounds in general will have different interests and backgrounds like I got to go out hiking a lot um, other people will have different experiences and you know the, the broader the experiences you can bring to the table the better and yeah a lot of times those are couched in gender very good. For those of you who've just joined us and you want to know about what this earnest and gr uh, grounded uh, speaker uh, is with me today, she is my guest, Kathleen, Professor Kathleen Treseder, 
UCI ecology and evolutionary scientist. She is also here at UCI Chancellor's Fellow and a leader of her own Tresider Lab on Ask a Leader, KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and streaming around the world on the web, KUCI.org. So we're talking about the managing and the teaching and now the researching. Uh, let's talk about the, um, the, the scientific inquiry that you brought in, that you were picking up along the way. Now, uh, when did you start seeing yourself, not, I'm not talking about as a scientist, but when mm -hmm. did you thought, start working on the fungi as a holy grail of, the, yeah. of, of, of dealing with these huge ecosystems? You know, I came into fungi pretty late in my career. Really? Um, what happened? Yeah, it was at the end of my graduate work. Um, in Stanford? Yeah, at Stanford. Before that, I was working mostly on plants. Um, all along, I've been interested in climate change. That is the reason why I do what I do. Um, I realized as I was going through grad school that there was this really important component of the ecosystem that's fungi, and we know so little about them, but we know they're doing really important things for us. Uh, and I thought that was a really wide open field, really exciting. And so I went into fungi starting my postdoc. I found someone who's amazing fungal ecologist Mike Allen at UC Riverside and he was willing to take me on even though I knew nothing about them and he <laughs> taught me the basics and I tried to pick up on it really fast. Well that's a big deal uh, yeah. that you're not you haven't been specializing for, for I mean you, t you turned on that mm -hmm. mushroom dime <laughs> there and the, that might have been a, that that would that was a challenge. It really was I it, it was a risk and because it's really hard to go into an area that you don't know very much about when your peers can stay in the same area and are already experts. But I really wanted to do it. It seemed really important to me. And I'm glad that I did because they're just incredible. And I just can't believe how much we've learned about them in the past 10 years. Well, I just want to go back to our earlier formative discussion. And uh, yeah. you had the self-assuredness from all of the self-starting that you did as a young person, you thought, well, this, this, y uh, you somehow uh, subconsciously were carrying that self-assured disposition into redirecting your scientific inquiry into this whole new field. Right. And, and it's very complicated, as you said. Yeah. And, and as you've given in your lovely talk at Harvard, we can all see on Vimeo, folks, it's not hard to find, <laughs> that uh, you had, you also are pivoting in your assumptions about the contributions yeah. that the fungi are making. Are, what are they right. doing? So we, let's talk about uh, what you had, your previous consideration changing with the mm -hmm. all-important nitrogen uptake and carbon sequestration. Yeah, so, so the nice thing about uh, microbes and fungi is that, you know, when I got into this, we have very little data. So we had all these ideas about how they worked and they made a ton of sense and there was nothing to contradict them because we didn't have the data. <laughs> so we could feel very self-assured we knew what was going on. Um, and now we've gotten to the point where we can collect lots of data in the field we haven't been able to do it before. And they're just turning all of our assumptions on their head. It's just amazing. And so, you know, just to give you an idea, Please. Um, there's this special type of fungi called mycorrhizal, mycorrhizal fungi. Without them, we would not exist. So they form relationships with almost every plant on Earth. 
Those plants cannot live without them. This includes all of our crop plants we get food from. So these fungi, they uh, invade the roots of plants. They grow inside of them. It's symbiotic. They're symbiotic. Not parasitic. Yeah, they're mutualistic. And they grow their hyphae out into the soil, and they're great at scavenging for nutrients. They're much better than plants are. And so they bring these nutrients in, like nitrogen and phosphorus. They pass some of those on to the plant. Um, And then the plant, in exchange, gives sugar to the fungi. And so it's a mutualistic relationship. They both benefit. Um, You know, again, if those plants don't have the fungi to feed them those nutrients, they barely survive. A lot of times they don't at all. So it's very, very important. So, you know, we really thought we had a good idea of how these fungi work because we'd studied them in the greenhouse or in the lab for a while. But it turns out we didn't. So, you know, what we thought was that, you know, basically the role of those fungi was to take up nutrients for plants. Um, They didn't conduct any, say, decomposition. They didn't break down old material like most fungi do. And so they'd have a certain effect on the ecosystem. But now we can start to measure what they're actually doing out in the field. And they're not doing what we think they're doing. They're actually breaking down a lot of that old dead material (laughs) in the soil and releasing CO2 as they do it. And so they're contributing to global change in ways that we didn't expect because CO2 is a greenhouse gas. So that's a problem. Yeah, it it is a problem. Um, It's something that's just happening happening naturally. If that process is affected because of things like drought or fires or stuff like that, we need to know. Well, do you have some guesses? Well, you know, we do know, for instance, that fires, like we've had a lot of fires in the news. And we'll have more. Yeah. They're on their increase. They, they sterilize the soil. It's amazing. If they're intense, like the, the intense fires that we've been seeing here, will actually burn the soil off and sterilize the, the material underneath. And it kills those microbes. And it takes them a while to come back. So those mycorrhizal fungi that are really important to help the native plants mm-hmm. reestablish yes. are gone. And so that's something that we need to know about because if they are removed, we can just, we can add them, actually. We can add them to help the ecosystems recover. And so these are things we're working on right now in my lab. Add them, but add them from a comparable, not an incomparable um, microclimate, uh, micro setting. Exactly. Oh boy. That's so, but so it's probably, it was probably disconcerting to see that you had to reconsider what you thought were benefits as yeah. now a, a, a huge drawback because we're, we're, we're all trying to sequester the carbon sources. And right. that's, that is the holy grail. Yeah. So then with your scientific inquiry, I'd like to know what, what you bring to it, all, all, all that you are. What is it like, in two ways, uh, of what it's, what's goes on with you have to reconsider what mm-hmm. uh, your assumptions were and... What is it like as a scientist to consider that you may not have the answer in your <laughs> lifetime? <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's exciting. I, that's what gets me out of bed. I've got to figure out what they're doing. And I don't mind not knowing. And I don't mind finding out that I'm wrong. So if the data are there and the data show me that what we were thinking of is not right, then that's great. We've learned. Um, I think it depends. Like, like some people really want to have a good background in what they're working on. They want to know 95% of it and learn that last 5%. It's just a matter of personality. I, I really like doing risky work and making discoveries in an area that we know very little about. So let's talk about the domains that you get to travel to. There's yeah. the Alaskan Boreal uh, 
mm-hmm. forest, and you you offer that it's simply a, a it's a zone you like to go to, <laughs> geographic zone. I'm sure there's some yeah. other aspects, some mental zones there as well. But yeah. tell us what your field experience involves. So what I do is I focus on ecosystems that are endangered um, by climate change. And so, you know, some ecosystems are more vulnerable than others. Uh, we have the ecosystems right around us here in Southern California, and they're very vulnerable because of fire. So we study them. Um, there are northern forests up in Alaska, and they're vulnerable because global warming is happening up there faster than anywhere else. You were saying Alaska is fastest mm-hmm. than anywhere in the world. Yes, exactly. And furthermore, a lot of the soils up there are frozen. So as they heat up, those soils are thawing, and that's a huge change in the ecosystem. And there's also a lot more fires up there. There's three times as many fires there now than there used to be because it's warmer and drier. And then a third ecosystem we study that's endangered is the cloud forests in Costa Rica. So, you know, there are these mountains in Costa Rica that are so tall that they're up in the clouds. And there are a lot of organisms that live there that only live there because they're immersed in the clouds all the time. And now as global warming is happening, those clouds are lifting higher and higher up off the mountain. And pretty soon there's going to be no cloud forests anymore. They're just going to be regular mountain forests. So you have a team that's going there. Mm-hmm. I have you, a grad there. Yeah. Grad student Caitlin Luby, she's studying that. She, she, this is another example. That was her background. She did her master's and her bachelor's degree down there. She knows much more about the cloud forest than I could ever hope to. And she's doing climate change studies there. And then, of course, I'm very lucky, and I get to go down and make sure that her experiments are going well, which she doesn't really need me to do, but I need to see the ecosystems. And so I have the great experience of going down and visiting these cloud forests. So those are the two major areas that you're... Focused on. Yeah. Okay. So that, those areas, and uh, I guess when you're talking about the the aftermath of a fire with sterilizing that, then maybe we'll Mm -hmm. have a a landslide. Mm -hmm. So is that, so underneath the landslide, it's no longer sterile soil, Mm -hmm. so the... The fungi have a, a chance there mm. in, in that particular tier of, of uh, turf? Yeah, so these, these responses are very complicated. Actually, the landslide, you know, I'm glad you brought that up because uh, fungi are actually really important in stabilizing soil. So they have these little hyphae they grow out. They're like little spider webs, and they're sticky. And so as they grow out through the soil, they stick all these particles together, mm-hmm. and they prevent a lot of these landslides from happening. We don't even it's know amazing. that. Yeah, Except for incredible. people like you bring that <laughs> to our attention. Yeah, and so that's, that's one of the reasons that we have these landslides after the fires is because you don't have, well, you don't have the plant roots, and you don't have the fungi holding that soil in. So that's one way that we can help start to try to offset these landslides is you know seeding these fungi into these ecosystems that's as soon been happening as we can. okay yeah. so yeah you can do that manually all right so yeah. let's say in nearby laguna beach yeah. there's a landslide you can go to a, a comparable nearby mm-hmm. uh, m- microzone and yeah. in, you're literally injecting are yeah. you not the you, the turf into that uh, new t- the, the blighted turf you can just scatter the soil from the intact that's ecosystem all. on top yeah, and then the fungi will grow in, and they'll take over, and it's and it's remarkably easy. And you can monitor that. You can, can you, you can have you go back and check it. Yeah, that they yeah, are. Yeah, and they'll establish. And so it's a very simple way to deal with this problem. So are you working with local governments to? Yeah. Do okay. Yeah, we're working with conservation groups here, the Irvine Ranch Conservancy, and NROC, and they have a lot of restoration efforts even here on campus. 
and also in Newport Beach and all these things. And they know, they have realized that fungi are very important in restoring ecosystems. So they'll bring us in. My student Mia Maltz, that's her area of expertise, restoration ecology. So they call her up, they bring her in, they have her look at the soils and tell them what she thinks. And we'll help them seed the fungi back in. Well, that's a marvel. Yeah. For those of you who've just joined us, we are talking to UCI Professor of Ecology and Evolution's, uh, Evolutionary Science, Dr. Kathleen Treseder. She is also a Chancellor Fellow and a leader, as I've mentioned earlier, the, the Treseder Lab, here on Ask a Leader. So I'd like to find out, let's, let's go into, uh, in a way of describing what you're doing, perhaps uh, prescriptions for mm. supporting up-and-coming yeah. scientists. Let's say we're talking to, to women who want to make a better case than they've been mm. able to uh, in being identified like the Andrea Romero's and the yeah. others. Yeah. Uh, what, what kind of, of way of calling out to them would here right. would you have in mind well you know if I were to talk to someone in that position uh, a girl or a young woman who's interested in science I would say absolutely go for science you know take your place in the science world it might seem very daunting and might seem like it's hard to break in but there are lots of programs out there specifically to help girls and women's girls and women come into science so you know if you're a young girl here in Southern California we have programs called girls Inc and they facilitate bringing girls into science. We have something called Tech Trek that UCI does every summer. They bring eighth grade girls in and show them around labs. So we host some girls in our lab. You can even you can even just email a professor at a university and ask them if you can come work in their lab. And so we, for instance, have a sixth grader who contacted Adriana, and Adriana said, "Yes, come on in. She's a, she's Adriana's assistant." in the lab and she's doing her uh, science fair project with us. So we have sixth graders, we have middle schoolers, we have high school students, and you know, they're not all women, but we really try to help promote women. And I think it's really important. So, so you can do it. There are lots of opportunities. Don't be shy. Contact scientists and ask them if you can help. Now, you talked about the curriculum. How about them taking seriously their other interests that allow them yeah. to acquire skills that have everything to do with being an effective scientist. Mm -hmm. You never know what skill you're going to call upon. So there will be skills that I learned 20 years ago that I never thought I would need. And then I come across a question that I need that skill for. And so, you know, just be curious. Be broadly curious. Anything you're interested in, you don't need to focus solely on science to be taken seriously, uh, be interested in lots of things and mostly pursue your passions. Because if you are doing what you love, that makes it so much easier and it helps you overcome any problems that arise. So I, I want to give you a chance to reach really broadly out there. So mm -hmm. you talked about skill sets. So somebody's had their summer job at a, a, a sporting goods shop. Right. They learn how to promote something. Exactly. So that can be somebody who's packaging successfully their grant mm. to somebody and uh, that, you know, they know where the sporting goods are used. But so it's, a, I guess it's being able to see yeah. 
what everything has to do to contribute that. And I now I want to give you a chance. I, I mean this with all the earnestness mm -hmm. I can muster. Pitching your message to parents, the parents yeah. of today. Yeah. What in the most expansive way of thinking, what can you say to them, knowing what you know of what we're, where we're trending right now? Yeah, I would say support your kids with what they want to do. Whatever they're interested in, even if it seems ridiculous, <laughs> like playing with bugs in the backyard, and that's all they want to do, support them and uh, really encourage them. Don't give them any sign that it's dumb or it's not going to be lucrative when they grow up. And they'll find a way. They'll find a way to make it work. Well, I'm, I'm also thinking of uh, choices that they're yeah. making that parents are, are there to oh, be yeah. orchestrating. Yeah. Now, we know the high-tech titans do not let their, they're very restrictive of their offspring's screen time. They, yeah, they yeah. know exactly what's happening yeah. with uh, the cognitive development and the screen time factor. Yeah. So uh, what would you say to parents about, uh, A, about to the extent they can, uh, steering to other choices than that, yeah. and B, making a decision for a child that there are only certain professions that are honored in yeah. that cultural familial setting. Yeah, well, I would, yeah, again, I would just say, let, let the kids do what they want to do. Let them choose their activities. I think definitely uh, discouraging them from watching TV and playing video games is, is probably pretty helpful. But the only exception being Minecraft. Minecraft seems just really worthwhile. Um, but for the most part, you can get them outside, get them working with their hands. Those are the things that they'll remember. And, you know, lots of free and structured time. I think that's really important. Um, that was very helpful for me. Anyway. That's a, it's a hard pitch, though, to it say is. free and structured. Everybody wants to be able to load up that resume yeah. and load up that day with activities. I think there's so much pressure right now. You know, I have these young kids, and I see that. Right now, my kids are really, really into Legos. That's the last few weeks. It's going to change pretty soon. They love Legos. They come home from school. That's what they want to do. So that's what they do. Um, and then I saw a note. Oh, you know, somebody's starting up a Lego uh, club, a Lego team, so where they can do competitions and stuff. And I thought, my first thought was, oh, that'd be great. You know, they would, they would love that. But then on the other hand, that's time when they're kind of going to be told what to do. <laughs> they don't have any other but choice. But they may be on the screen doing that, right? Yeah, exactly. Like and so Lego chat. Yeah, so I think... You know, the, to the extent that they can have free play, you just never know. They'll know. They'll find out what they're interested in. I think it's better than being told. But that's just my opinion. Wow. Folks, yeah. it doesn't get more earnest and more resourceful and more intriguing than this opportunity with UCI Science, Dr. Kathleen Traceder. Kathleen Traceder, it has been such a joy to talk with you today on Ask a Leader. Great. Thank you. I really appreciate you having me in. And we'll look forward to having you return to the waves with Adriana or someone else. Yeah. And we can find out what's the latest and the greatest with your utterly important and essential enterprise. Thank you so much. Thank you. Well, we'll be back in just a moment to close out. But uh, first. Science will save the day.
the Aquabats, they never, never, never disappoint. So I want to really, I'm so glad we had a chance to hear from Dr. Tresseter today. And I'm thinking the impact is going to be exponential with her continuing to reach out to everybody. Well, next week, we'll have Michelle Bain. She's the Southern California Director of the High Speed Rail with the latest breaking details, including workshops soon to be conducted right here in OC. Talk with you next week. Thank you for listening. Music